But Tony, first off, how would you define technology? Yeah, technology is applied science and amplified power. Uh, it's an art, it's method, know-how, formula, uh, it's expertise. We amplify our native powers through new techniques. And so like Noah and the flood, uh, Noah and the animals couldn't outswim a global flood. And so God designed a ship. Uh, that's technology. Uh, the people of Babel couldn't live in the sky. So they engineered a tower to get up in the sky. That's technology. Uh, today, elevators in downtown Dubai carry people up into the stratosphere where they live and work. Um, Jacob and his sons in the Bible dug wells by hand, and now Union Pacific blasts trails through mountains with dynamite. Uh, we have huge augers that grind out underground tunnels for millions of telecom cables and uh, the smartphone, the, the smartphone that we're so used to, uh, it extends the popping electrical explosions uh, in our brains through our thumbs, uh, through our phones to become little digital ones and zeros that we can broadcast in messages to influence the world. And so technology, as I define it, is an intensification of our dexterity. It amplifies our influence. It empowers uh, our previously feeble intentions. So uh, technology makes us powerful, basically. That's how I would define it. It can be useful uh, and it can be addictively destructive as well. And the book, of course, is called God, Technology, and the Christian Life. Why did you decide to, to sit down, do research, and, and write this? Well, I couldn't find this book. Um, and that's why I wanted to write it. I wanted to get at uh, Elon Musk and Silicon Valley and look at uh, technology in the macro scale uh, using biblical principles, uh, specifically 12 major sections of scripture that explain what God's relationship to human innovation is, uh, where human innovation comes from, and how we as believers use those innovations. Um, and so I really couldn't find a book out there. Typically when Christians talk about tech, what they're talking about is social media, smartphones, things like that, digital media. And to me, that's like 2% of the technology we use in our lives. About 98% of our lives is not digital technology. Uh, we have tens of thousands of innovations that we use every single day, including layers of innovation that's making this conversation possible and, and that we can broadcast it later to an audience. These are all technologies. And I wanted to set biblical uh, principles for engaging in this age, which is the most technologically advanced age the world has ever seen. And um, a lot of Christians, I, I think, are surprised at how much the Bible has to say about uh, how we should engage with it. When it comes to, to innovations like technology, do you think that God has has an interest in it? Does, does he set up, you know, boundaries? You can only go this far at this time and so forth. Well, we know that God is very interested in human innovation from Genesis 4 verses 19 to 20, uh, 22, that is. Like the first few pages we see this in Genesis 4, it becomes evident that the story of human innovation is of biblical interest. Uh, and not only is God interested in the origins of human industry, as we see in Genesis 4 and Cain's great-great-grandchildren, but throughout Scripture we see that God sets nine boundaries uh, around human innovation that cannot be violated. Uh, that's why a whole book has to be written on this, to explain those nine governors, those governors that are set in place by God, that we cannot exceed or breach. And to me, this becomes very important because I find among Christians, there's this myth floating around that this world is sort of booby-trapped with things God didn't want us to discover, you know, genetics or nuclear power, you name it. And I think that's a fundamental misreading of the material universe and, and God's governance of it and a misreading of the Tower of Babel story, which is, is not to say that human aspiration threatens God. 
uh, but quite the opposite, that God cradles man's technological future. Uh, that's the takeaway from Babel. God cradles man's technological future. And so God does have very much of an interest, and we see that in 12 major sections throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Do you believe that God drops creative tech ideas into inventors' minds, for example, you know, to see pick an Einstein or an Elon Musk. It's not random, right? Right. Well, we know he does because he did with Noah. Uh, God can directly unveil engineering feats. And so the answer is yes to that question. I do think God creates innovators uh, that are specifically gifted to make advances. Uh, he makes them on purpose. He makes the Einsteins to be Einsteins. He makes the Edisons to be Edisons, the Teslas, the Musks to be Musk. And, and that's my take on Genesis 4, uh, verses 19 to 22. The three forefathers of industry, forefathers of what we now know as cattle breeding, professional music, and metallurgy. Like God invented those in inventors. In fact, that's how he controls the future, according to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 54. God creates the future by creating the creators of the future. Is a very complex argument made in Isaiah 54, but it's profoundly significant. God creates the future by creating the creators of that future. We see that in Isaiah 54, 16. And again, God delivers specific innovations. He delivers the blueprint for the largest ship ever built, the Ark, uh, which is a design given by direct revelation to Noah. Uh, but I think there's a far more common and... Um, a normative form of innovation that God uses, and we see that in farming technology. Uh, God tells us about this in Isaiah 28. In answer to the question, where do farmers get their latest techniques from? Uh, they get them from an interplay, an inventiveness that emerges when we play around with the possibilities of creation. And when we do that, when we do things that cause greater crops to grow, it is God himself who was tutoring us to make new tools and to use new techniques to do that. And that, I think, is a more normative way in which uh, he influences our inventiveness. We play around with the material possibilities of the creation, and in a few ideas— uh, that actually work, we invent new things. And behind all of that innovation was the generosity and the brilliance of the Creator all along. It has been said that uh, God is not limited by time, by space, that He is really outside that and observing it. Uh, yeah. God knows when you and I will, will pass away. And I mean, how do you wrap your head around that, or can you? It's, it pushes the limits of our brains. The Bible tells us that all things are from from him, through him, and to him are all things, which mean God, God knows everything not by analysis. He knows everything by Genesis. He doesn't stand back and observe Elon Musk and say, wow, there's an inventive guy. No, Elon Musk is from God, to God, and for God in some way. That doesn't mean he's a believer, but it, it means that all things are from God, to God, through God, for God. <laughs> and that's what, when Paul says that in Romans, that is a that is a mind-boggling statement because what you realize is that God is not standing back and looking at the history of man and making observations. He knows everything by Genesis because he is the creator behind it all. It is stunning, and it takes a lifetime for that to sink in. I'm still lost, believe me. <laughs> when it comes to specifics, like in your book, you talk about the, the, the power and capabilities of computer chips. Are we looking yeah. at even more complex things in coming years? 
Yeah, the computer chip is the most powerful thing in the continuous universe. Um, so if you exclude cosmic explosions and nuclear bombs that will exhaust their power in a hyperblink, of all the sustainable things in the entire universe, of things that are able to conduct the the highest um, uh, the highest density of power, the most energy flowing through a gram of matter each second, that that thing is the computer chip inside of our smartphones, inside of our tablets, inside of our laptops, our cars. That tiny microprocessor conducts more energy per second per gram through its tiny little corridors than anything else in the continuous universe. That is stunning. Uh, even the sun can't compare to the computer chip, the most energetically active thing in the known universe. And yes, it's always increasing. The processing power is exponential. Um, this leads to you know faster smartphones. This also leads to a global rival rivalry to to shrink computer chips down. You know, only smaller and faster chips can run the most powerful artificial intelligence, uh, which is a principal national security concern in the rivalry between between China and America right now, for example. So, AI could. Uh, unleash thousands of simultaneous attacks on an enemy far beyond the scope and speed of human response. In turn, a nation's self-defense must become even more superhuman to defend against such an attack. And so AI will become the most powerful tool in the hands of the first nation to corner the market of the world's fastest computer chips. So computer chips are this uh, this thing that has national security interests uh, uh, in the, among the global superpowers because we can amplify uh, human power and, and intention through artificial intelligence to do things at superhuman speeds. And that will be necessary to launch and to defend against uh, intercontinental attacks in the future. And going back, say, 50 years or so, uh, Neil Armstrong, the, the, the first landing on the moon, I have heard, and tell me if this is true, that the modern-day smartphone in your pocket has more power than what got Neil Armstrong up there? Exactly. Apollo 11 was navigated to the surface of the moon by an onboard computer called the Apollo Guidance Computer. Uh, it weighed 70 pounds, <laughs> so not exactly a laptop. Uh, this 70-pound navigational computer could only process very little data. Uh, it worked, obviously, uh, so that's great. But by comparison, my iPhone that I have in my hand right now has over 100,000 times the processing power of that 70-pound computer. Incredible. The, so the, the processing power I have at my disposal as I navigate my city using GPS and my map on my smartphone, giving me turn-by-turn -turn directions, that has 100,000 times more power than the navigational power Apollo 11 had to get to the surface of the moon. It's Stunning, and and one hundred thousand may be an understatement because uh, once we you know get into the M one chip, some of the latest chi chips that uh, Apple's making, that's going to exponentially rise. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of of processing speed beyond what they had on Apollo eleven. And when it comes to chips, uh, of course, uh, a lot of uh, dogs and cats are now chipped for identification in case they get lost. And yeah. in some countries, I understand that people can voluntarily get chipped for various reasons. Is this something to kind of be concerned about or is it gonna be a, a normal thing that is gonna to happen to most people? When it comes to technology, um, one of the lessons we take from the Tower of Babel is that human consensus is never going to happen again. And so there's always going to be disagreements and debates over vaccines, over com uh, computer chips being embedded into our flesh, into brain computer interfaces. Um, all of these things are going to raise all sorts of debates, and that's necessary, and that's healthy, and God actually put that tension in place at the Tower of Babel uh, as a mercy to us. And so I think... 
uh, that's going to be a question we're going to have to address. Is that, uh, is that leading to us being more healthy as a society, or will that just uh, empower countries to um, uh, govern over the patterns of their, um, uh, of, of their people? You know, we see in China, uh, biometric data is using to coerce its, uh, its population. Uh, that's a very bad use of of uh, of being able to take a photograph and recognize people through the vectors of their facial uh, features. But in the United States, Delta Airlines is using that same technology for um, uh, boarding uh, planes without boarding passes. And here in America, we love the technology. In uh, Hong Kong, the technology is very dangerous and it's threatening. And so I don't think there's ever going to be really a consensus around technologies like this. And I think that's a good thing. We need to have open and honest debates about them. Uh, a big thing we're hearing about lately is uh, from Facebook about the, the metaverse. Uh, a lot of people don't even have a concept of what it is. I'm still trying to, to get a feel for it. What, what is the metaverse going to be? Well, some sort of uh, online uh, existence. Um, it could be a surveillance state that whoever controls it can watch the behaviors of everyone, which is uh, kind of what the, the dream of social media companies is, is to watch people 24-7. And so that, in that sense, it's dangerous. But every technology misused will warp our sense of reality. And, and, and this is not a new temptation with digital media. It, it didn't become a problem with Facebook or Meta. What I discovered when writing this new book on technology was that the Bible storyline of theology, a theology of technology, is basically the same story as a theology of the city. Um, basically, the story of the cities of man and the technologies of man are the same story. And so what I found in, as I made that discovery is that uh, God's relationship to the cities of man is a complicated one, but it mirrors exactly the story of human innovation in scripture. So if you live in a city, that city can warp the way you see life or it can serve to enhance your life. So in some sense, living in a city is sort of a metaverse in itself. It's a sort of uh, it's a it's a warping, shaping, influencing way to view the world. And that's why Revelation chapter two and three, those seven letters to the seven churches is so important because every city, I live in Phoenix, my city is spring loaded with certain idolatrous tendencies that Christians must resist. The same is exactly true of the technologies around us. There's an analogy here. Uh, each social media platform is designed to encourage you to do things with it that would violate Christian standards for fairness or love or charity or modesty. And that's why I write in the book that if your conscience approves of you living inside of a city among all of its cultural pressures and idolatrous biases, you are simultaneously pre-approved to adopt new technology, even to work inside the tech industry. So apps and tech that push us in certain ways that warp the way we view the world is simply an extension of what it means to live inside the cities of man. If you live in a city like I do in Phoenix, I am confronted daily by a vision of prosperity and comfort and ease and self-centeredness that's extremely warping if I'm not careful. So I don't have to live in the metaverse to experience that, but if I'm aware of that, I could go into the metaverse and live there in a way that perhaps honors God if, 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 if that is, is deemed fit. So... That's one of the things that I want to show Christians in this, this study is to live in a city and to live in social media, to live in the metaverse, to live in a, a, an online world. Those are not entirely dissimilar things. They're each going to come with their own uh, intrinsic biases and idolatrous tendencies, just as we have living in our cities. One thing I really liked in, in your book, you talked about uh, in the biblical account of David and Goliath that uh, 
it was an encounter between two technologies that clashed. Can you can you go into that for us? Yeah. Yeah, First Samuel first 17 tells the epic story of a duel between two technologists, uh, two men, both of them amplifying their native dexterity. Goliath had been slaughtering armies in battle for years and years. He, would, he was an ancient terminator with sort of metal-shrouded flesh, tech-augmented strength, outfitted with the latest body armor, engineered weapons, all supersized to amplify his own native powers. And instead, David, who was a teenager, sort of a newbie to war, uh, he geared up with a familiar technique, uh, contrary to mistaken applications of this text that sort of pit faith against technology. David had both. He had faith in God and he had technology at his side. David's whirling, sl uh, his sling that he whirled around uh, is a great example of technology. It's amplifying, focusing, and concentrating the animate energy of his of his arm in order to fire a smooth stone in the air. So David's sling was an early advance in the rich history of technology. And that story began with levers and pulleys that amplified the power of animals and humans, and then added more efficient, inanimate power sources like water, water wheels, and then wind, windmills, fire and coal, steam engines, then electricity, fossil fuels, nuclear power, on and on it goes. So the central storyline of human innovation follows how we how we discover more potent power sources, we concentrate those, those power sources, and then we deploy them in demonstrations of greater and greater power. So in this ancient one-on-one -on -one showdown, we see a technological mismatch, uh, but not in the direction that we first assume. Goliath enters with technology suited for the front lines in close quarters combat with multiple enemies. David enters the standoff as a sniper. And assuming that he has good aim, David proves to be the master technologist in this one-on-one -on -one standoff. And so that's why it's a story of, of two technologists clashing on the battlefield. And you mentioned something in the book, a reference to the, the gospel of technology. What is that and how prevalent do you see that as being? Yeah, the cities of man are driven by a vision of the world in which death can be defeated by a couple of geeks in a lab. Um, death is an engineering uh, flaw that we need to fix and we can, we can engineer our way out of it. And once we do, once we unlock immortality, then God is finally irrelevant. And that hope drives a lot of our technologists. It's a false hope. Uh, it's an anti-Christian hope. But even as that hope drives them, this gospel of technology, as I call it, what they produce in a, a laboratory may include a lot of helpful and healing technologies that we can embrace and adopt as Christians while always being aware that the overarching worldview is fallen and will ultimately fail. Again, this is akin to living with discernment inside of the cities of man. And so that's what I mean by the gospel of technology, that there's a, there's a hope that we can engineer our way out of death that drives the technologists in Silicon Valley, which is a false hope, but may lead to beneficial technologies that we can use as Christians. And speaking about Silicon Valley, you mentioned uh, the quote generally is that God governs every square inch of Silicon Valley. Can you can you take us an yes. overview of that? Yeah, I think Christians tend to think that uh, God has withdrawn from from Silicon Valley. He sort of is in the periphery. Uh, what Elon Musk's uh, what Elon Musk does, buying Twitter or sending a spacecraft to Mars, he's just doing that on his own, and God has nothing to do with that. And in fact, I think that's a, a wrong way to view the world. A better way to view the world, like we talked about a little bit ago, is to see that God actually governs every square inch of Silicon Valley. Not just every square inch outside Silicon Valley, but inside Silicon Valley. And that's a hard sell for a lot of Christians when you look at the 
when you look at the the stats on the number of Christians in Silicon Valley, the number of people who read their Bibles every day in Silicon Valley, the number of people who pray every day in Silicon Valley, those numbers are very, very low. Um, and so we tend to think, well, it must be a godless place that God is sort of vacated from and doesn't do anything in. And that's a false and wrong way to view Silicon Valley. And that's one of the things I try to lay out in this book is to show a God-centered vision of technology in which God is there. He's active. He's at work. And he has a, a plan for Silicon Valley. He has a plan for Elon Musk. It may not be a saving plan. He may not save Elon Musk, but he has a plan for his gifts and his usefulness in this world for some reason. And so trying to help Christians to see that God is active in every square inch of Silicon Valley is something that comes right out of the, the, the context of Scripture. And my closing question would be, are, are you optimistic about the immediate future for, for mankind? I'm optimistic in uh, the future of mankind because, because I'm optimistic in the God who governs human innovation and the God who governs human drama. Um, he is over all things. Uh, I can trust him. My, my hope is not in what Elon Musk can make tomorrow. My hope is in the God who governs over every square inch of this world, who cradles our technological future, and who gives us hope that we can trust in him, that even as we see warfare in the Ukraine, as we see uh, Russia's aggression, as we see the, the powerful war weapons and, and, and the carnage and the destruction, uh, I know that God governs all things for whatever purpose he has. He is governing all things so that in the end, he will have a bride, he will have his church happy in his son for all eternity. And everything that happens in the news now is working to that end. I don't know how each headline fits into that plan, but I know that that's the plan. And so we can trust God with our technologies. We can trust God with the human drama. We can trust God with what we see in the newspaper because we know that he governs all things for his glory and the happiness of his church forever. All right. Tony, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. It's a lot to to process. It is in your book, and uh, hopefully people will pick up a copy and, and study it, and uh, you know it can lead to more conversations. But in the meantime, thank you for sharing with us. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you.